Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Social media, to me, is like driving a car, right? You should never drive angry. You should never drive emotional. You should never drive drunk. Just as you should never pick up your keys in those situations, you also should never pick up your phone. In those situations, do not reach for your phone if you're angry. Do not reach for your phone if you're emotional. Do not reach for your phone if you're blasted. So that brings me to Aaron Rodgers. He took to Instagram last night, and I'm not sure what was going on. I don't know if he had had a pop or two. I don't know if he was just feeling kind of reflective, nostalgic. I don't know if, I don't know. I don't know, but I know this. If you were hoping for some clarity on his future plans with the Packers, you were begging. Instead, this is what you got. Quote, here's some hashtag Monday Night Gratitude for some of the incredibly special people in my life with some pictures from the last beautiful year. End quote. All right, I get that. I'm all about gratitude. Seriously, it's a great practice to have. It's a great tool for reframing your life and everything in it. And the truth is, I personally do struggle with this. I work on this myself. I'll admit it. I am struggling with gratitude. I'll admit it. I should be way more grateful for everything in my life. Now, my man Aaron does not seem to have that problem. He's extremely grateful. He's figured this out. And here comes the gratitude. At Shailene Woodley, thanks for letting me chase after you the first couple of months after we met and finally letting me catch up to you and be a part of your life. Thanks for always having my back, for the incredible kindness you show me and everyone you meet, and for showing me what unconditional love looks like. I love you, and I'm grateful for you. End of quote. Now, that came a little while after an Instagram story, which included a tweet from Aubrey Marcus that read, quote, The rarest gift you can give is love. I love you no matter what, just as you are, and you are always forgiven. I expect nothing, and I am grateful for everything. I give you the truth only and always. You are learning in the perfect way. Give this gift to yourself first. End of quote. And then he added two heart emojis to it. Now, all this, of course, comes uh, amidst reports that the two of them have split. So I have no idea really how to interpret any of that. I don't know what that means. Does that mean that they still are broken up? Does that mean that they've gotten back together? Does it mean that Aaron's trying to get back together with her? I don't know. I don't know, and I really don't care. None of my business. Even if he did reach for his phone and put it out there, I'm really not that interested in trying to decode that cryptic message. But I know you dopes are. And I know what you're going to do with it. You're probably going to say, you can't get into the booze, then get into your own feelings, and then tag your ex on social media. That you can't be spending time looking at your ex's social and then asking, hey man, are you a four-time MVP or a zit-faced middle schooler who just got worked by one of the mean girls right before the big dance? And you clones will also say that it's weird as hell that a nearly 40-year-old man and a four-time league MVP and one of the greatest players in NFL history is tripping on the one that got away. Like, I know you clones. I know what you'll do. I know who you are. I know what you are. I know what you do. And I know exactly what's going to happen. I'm just saying, me does not interest me. And I'm not going to waste a lot of time on this either. You know why? I don't know what the hell Aaron's thinking right now, and I'm not going to waste any time trying to figure that out either. I've got better things to do than try to break that code, to try to decipher that code. And that's not even a shot at Aaron. It's not. He's on record as saying he's going to make a decision on his future quickly. So me, I'm just going to wait for that. I'm going to wait on that because as he points out, it's not going to take that long. In the meantime, if you have nothing better to do than react to all of this, then my man's won the day yet again. What I'm saying is what this guy does off the field and who he does it with does not interest me. It just doesn't. It never has. It's none of my business. I don't care. Unlike many of you, I'm just not about that at all. 
I don't know what that part of that post means. I don't know why he did it. I don't even know what he's saying. I don't know what their status is. I just know I really don't care. Literally, even though he put it out there, to me, that's between the two of them. Now, what I do find a little more interesting is the football aspect of all this. And he did eventually get there, posting, quote, to the men I got to share the QB room with, notice it's past tense, to the men I got to share the QB room with every day, Matt, Nathaniel, Luke, Jordan Love, Kurt, you guys made every day so much fun. And I'm so thankful for the daily laughs and stress relief that you brought me every week of the year. I love you guys. End of quote. Then he went on to thank the, quote, Friday crew, which includes his guys Randall Cobb and David Bakhtiari. And then again, more gratitude. Quote, to my teammates, past and current, you are the icing on the beautiful cake. We call our job football. The friendships that we have will trans will transcend our collective time in this game, and I'm so thankful for the role that each of you have played in making my life that much better. I love you guys, and I cherish the memories that we've made. You know, I, again, part of that I get. As I get older, my relationships with my dudes mean even more. You know, you kind of take it for granted when you're younger, and then you come to realize, really, what's really important in life? Health, relationships. All right, so... What does that all mean then? I mean, he was talking like it was past tense. Does that mean that he's coming back to the Packers? Does that mean he's already sort of checked out and is not going to return to the Packers? Again, I don't know. Does that mean he's retiring? I don't know. Does that reference to Nathaniel mean that he's going to go to the Broncos? I don't know. And yes, I recognize that last photo in the collection of photos is one of Randall Cobb and Devontae Adams without Rodgers. And yes, he's always standing between those two in those picks. And I know that's also from Kansas City, the game that he missed due to COVID. So what does that mean? Does that mean he's retiring? Is that a sign that he's sending that he's going to leave the Packers? Is that him showing you what life's going to be like without him? I mean, this much I think I can say, that photo was not an accident. He chose that photo with a purpose, an intent. I just don't know what the purpose was. Listen, knowing Aaron, it's distinctly possible that he really was looking to send a cryptic message or five with that post. Like, knowing him, he knew exactly what he was doing, and he is sending out cryptic messages, but... But knowing Aaron, I don't know, maybe he had a scotch. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he just was sharing some hashtag Monday Night Gratitude. He's been talking about gratitude for well over a year now. I know this. This dude has always been extremely private about everything. So yes, it is a little surprising that he has taken to social in a manner like this. But the truth is, he didn't really say anything concrete in that post. He just expressed gratitude and love. But nothing really concrete. At least not about anything that concerns any of us. Far as I can tell, that really was just some Monday night gratitude. But I'll tell you this. If in fact that was just Monday night gratitude, I'm not going to Tuesday morning quarterback it. I don't traffic in that. If that's how you want to spend your time, you go right ahead. Me, I'm just going to lay out, and I'm going to wait for him to actually say what he's going to actually do, and then you can have my take. Otherwise, I'm not going to speculate. I'm just not in that business of trying to decode cryptic messages that may or may not be cryptic messages, but actually a statement of gratitude. I just don't know. I don't talk about things that I don't know about, so I'm not going to play that game. I just wanted to acknowledge it off the top. Yes, that happened. No, I'm not going to try and figure out what that means. I'm just going to wait. Aaron, you let me know. Let us all know when you decide. Because that's what it comes down to. And now a message from Discover about rewards. If you're a loyal credit card customer, you should be rewarded for your loyalty. Preferably with something that's useful. You know, like Cashback Match, for instance. Discover matches all the cash back you've earned at the end of your first year. Finally, rewards that do make sense. 
Discover. Exceptionally common sense. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Limitations do apply. Ben Mesrek joins me right now. Ben, my man. How you doing, Ben? <laughs> hey, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. You know, it's become my ritual now. Day one of a new book. <laughs> I got to come on with you. Um, it's just awesome to talk to you again. So oh, thanks man. so much for having I, I me. I love it so much, Ben. I appreciate you so much, and I appreciate that you always do that for us. Before we talk about the book, really quickly, am I correct in thinking it has been 20 years, Ben, since bringing down the house? When that came out, did you have any idea what the next two decades would be like for you? No, I mean, it's crazy. It's, yeah, it's 20 year anniversary this year of that story. And when that book came out, it was a little book, it had a tiny first printing. Uh, I was a writer who was massively in debt, <laughs> living in an apartment in Boston that I couldn't afford, um, and eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and I had no idea what would come next. I'd never written nonfiction before, um, and, and I went on your show. <laughs> it was, was life-changing for me, um, and the clones really really just supported it, and, and it exploded, and it changed my life. You're amazing. Ben Mesrek is joining us, The Midnight Cowboy, or The Midnight Ride, I should, comes out today. <laughs> the Midnight Cowboy, yeah, I like right? that. That's, you know, it's been 20 years, Ben, that'll happen. <laughs> no, The Midnight Ride comes out today. Now, as you've said, this is something of a departure for you in the sense that it's a work of fiction, but it also ties into real events like the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist in Boston. So what was the initial idea, idea that triggered this book? Yeah, so The Midnight Ride is like a Da Vinci Code-style thriller, but based in real history. And it started as a serialized novella. The Boston Globe came to me in the midst of the pandemic, you know, last winter when everyone was in hysterics and it was just this awful time. And they wanted to put something in the paper that wasn't just dark news. So they said, would you do something every day for three weeks? It was, uh, the idea was just anything. And I said, I'll only do it if I can do like a, a thriller, something I don't normally do. Um, and they said, sure. So it, it, air, it first ran as a chapter a day for three weeks in the Boston Globe. Um, and then things kind of went crazy. And, and out of the blue, Spielberg bought the rights. It was getting all this attention. Um, and so I turned it into a full-size book. And so what's coming out today is, you know, a full-size thriller um, that started as this small thing for the globe. The Midnight Ride is out today. So, Ben, for those who don't know, in 1990, 13 works of art were stolen. The crime has never been solved. For those who do not know, how did the thieves enter the museum, and exactly what did they take? Yeah, I mean, this is a crazy story. So the Gardner Museum in Boston, um, in the middle of the night, uh, in 1990, the two guys posing as police officers rang the doorbell, essentially, came in, tied up the two guards, and then spent a long time stealing art. Um, it ended up being the largest art heist in history, unsolved, half a billion dollars worth of art stolen. But they also stole some strange objects that made no sense. And, and it's a really crazy story. There have been some documentaries. It's never been solved. You know, people have linked it to the Irish mob in Boston. People have linked it to the Italian mob. Um, but my entrance to the story actually happened a decade ago. After bringing down the house in 21 and the social network, I became like the go-to guy. People would just call me with story ideas. And in the middle of the night one night, I got a call from a guy who said that he had been one of the people who robbed the Gardner Museum. He told me just enough on the phone that made me think he might have actually been involved. Um, and then he proceeded to tell me he was going to break his probation and meet me in the middle of the night in South Boston in an alley. And he gave me the address to this alley in South Boston. And, you know, I'm a pretty, not a big, strong guy. <laughs> Jim, you know me. I'm kind of scared of most things. And I, I really wanted to meet this guy. But as I talked to him, even though he was telling me things that made me think he might really have been involved, he was also telling me some stuff that made me very nervous. And in the end, my spidey sense went off and I just, I didn't go. And never heard from the guy again. And who knows? I might have been able to solve the gardener's theft if I had gone. But for years and years and years, it's always been in the back of my head that I've wanted to get involved and do some sort of research in it. And so that's kind of where the inkling began for this book, was really a real-life guy calling me and, and telling me he had robbed the Gardner Museum. Um, I don't know for sure whether he did or not. It's still an unsolved mystery. There's a reward of $10 million for anyone who finds those paintings. Um, but that's essentially what, what started the Midnight Ride. And frankly, Ben, I'm amazed at some of the situations you put yourself in and some of the risks that you will take creatively in terms of, like, 
potential physical damage or danger to your health. You've always put yourself out there and taken some shots. The book is called The Midnight Ride. It's out today. So, Ben, also, there is a counting card element to this. What is the who is the the card counter and what is her background? Yeah, so the book opens essentially at the Encore, um, the casino, the new casino in Boston. If you've been to Boston, you know there's a, a crazy new Vegas-style casino there. And the story starts with an MIT card counter, a woman named Haley Gordon, who's just a, a genius card counter. And you know I, I've spent a lot of time with these people, and so I kind of know it. And she's card, counting cards, gets chased, and then discovers something that leads her into this mystery, which links the Gardner Museum theft all the way back to the Revolutionary War and uh, and Paul Revere. And I don't want to give too much away, but the main character of the story is a card counter, so I do get into that a bit. Um, so I do go back to Bringing Down the House, which is kind of cool. You know, the fact that it's been 20 years since Bringing Down the House, it was kind of a coincidence. I didn't even realize it when I was writing this story that I was was going back to the sort of card counting theme um, 20 years later. I, I'm so blown away, Ben. 20 years. The Midnight Ride is out today. Also, Ben, you've talked about Michael Crichton being one of the inspirations back in the day for you. What was it about his writing that jumped out to you and kind of caught your fancy? Yeah, I mean, I've always been obsessed with the way he could pick a story that was going to be the thing we were going to be talking about a year later. <laughs> because when you write a book, it's always kind of a year in advance. And so, you know, he was amazing at that. Uh, I think Jurassic Park is one of the best books and movies, you know, ever done. And the idea um, of being Michael Crichton came from reading Jurassic Park over and over again, and I was just obsessed. I wanted to, wanted to write my own Jurassic Park one day. Um, I just think, you know, he was a writer who was just really on the pulse of what people would be interested in. He could write thrillers with using not a lot of words, you know. A lot of the uh, you know reviewers who've reviewed my books always say that I write for people who don't read. And I think I think that Michael Crichton was similar in that respect as he wrote for people who maybe don't sit and read books all the time, but they pick up one of his books and it reads like a movie. And so that's always been my goal is I want to I want to write movies as books. Um, and so, yeah, that's where I get my start, I guess. Love it. Ben Mesrek joining us. Now, Ben, there's also an NFT component to your work. In this case, how does the NFT function as it relates to your work? Yeah, so this is really cool. So we're doing this really fun, innovative, and hopefully people will love it. It's a puzzle. If you buy a copy of The Midnight Ride um, and, you you know, you show your proof of purchase on our, our website, and, and, and it's benmesricnft.com for all the information, um, you're going to get a free NFT, and it's going to change every day for two weeks, and it's a puzzle. And as you solve the puzzle, you're going to win prizes. The eventual prize is going to be one ETH, um, but there's going to be prizes along the way. I've been into the NFT space for a little while now. I launched something called the BenFT, um, which is uh, I'm actually dropping three NFTs. The first one I already dropped and sold out, and if you own all three, you get to share in a screenplay that I'm writing. So you own half of the screenplay with me. So the NFT holders are going to get, you know, revenue as the screenplay becomes a movie. Um, and that's been the project that's, that's doing very well. So I really love the NFT space, and I've built a community around it. And now with the Midnight Ride, uh, if you buy the book and love the book, it's going to create a whole big NFT book club around it. And I know a lot of people aren't into the NFT space yet. They think it's a scam. They, are, they aren't buying them yet. But I have to say, I think it's really the future, and I think it's fascinating, and especially for writers, musicians, actors, you know, celebrity sports figures. The NFT is a way to build a community that's incentivized to push you forward, and they themselves own a piece of it. So if you're interested and you want to get your first NFT, or if you're into NFTs, get a copy of The Midnight Ride and join us in this NFT puzzle um, and I think it's going to be a blast for everyone. Nice job, Ben. Really quickly, I've only got about 60 seconds, but do you still believe in crypto strongly? I believe more than ever. I mean, I think people get nervous, you know, because it drops down a few thousand. But look at where it is, 37,000 for Bitcoin, you know, ETH at 20, uh, whatever, 800, 2,500. These numbers are still incredible. And I think when you think long term, look, 10 years from now, nobody's going to be using paper money. We're not going to be using our wallets. And we're not going to be using credit cards to a bank that we don't trust or something supported by a government that we may not trust, we're all going to be using crypto one day. And, you know, you look at what's happening in the Ukraine, the disorder in the world. Uh, if I were sitting in the Ukraine right now, I, wish, I would like to have my money in Bitcoin, <laughs> not in Ukrainian dollars, right? And I think that looking forward as the world, you know, progresses, we're all going to be moving into crypto one day. So I will always remain bullish on crypto. This podcast is brought to you by DirecTV Stream. 
Now, does this sound familiar to you? You've got one device that allows you to catch the game live, another that lets you stream your favorite shows, you're watching sports highlights on your phone, and you've got your neighbor's best friends log in for all the good stuff. Does that sound familiar? If so, let me tell you about a very simple way to get all the entertainment that you love, but without all that hassle. It's called Direct TV Stream. It brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before, so you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. It also means no juggling remotes, no need to buy another device ever again, and the very best part, there is no annual contract. So get rid of all the clutter and all the confusion and get your TV together with DirecTV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. Compatible devices required. Content varies by package. It's 2-22-22. Christmas Day here in the jungle. An anything goes segment. Clones, do whatever the hell you want. But there is a line. Do not cross it. You can still get run. For the last time, what the anything goes segment means is I'm lifting the moratoriums and you can do things that ordinarily I would never allow. But there is a line. If you cross the line, you'll get hammered. You'll get run. The buzzer rule is still in effect. So let me give you a sense. Here's the early email slash social media reaction. I've got phone lines open. If you want to call with something on Anything Goes, go ahead. Rome, don't stop the Anything Goes segment until everything is fully covered. Thanks, European males. War bums using a shopping cart wheel as an echo dot. All right, there you go. Off and running. These are things that would never be allowed. How about this one? Why did the homeless man stop to help the kids cross the street? To get them into his van. Dennis in San Luis Obispo. Sick. Unacceptable. But I'm going to allow that barely. Because today is 2-22-22. Here's one. A tan smack. A fam's haiku. Edward James Olmos. Sarah Jessica Parker. Monica Selish. Scott and Provo. Is that technically 575? Yes, it is. I will allow it. Just today. Turtleneck tan man. Clay Thompson looks like he could smoke a cigarette in the rain and have it not get wet with that ginormous natural canopy of a nose on that hideous grill. The only thing good about football being over is that I don't have to see that rat-faced freak, Chris Collinsworth, slide into my TV frame every Sunday night looking for some cheese to munch on. Weasel Pimp and SF, War Anything Goes segment, and Toby calling in. Yeah, I don't know. That sounded like Rat Family Smack right there. Brian and San Pedro's in. For 2-22-22, let's start a chalk family, starting with Eddie Munster, Billy Donovan, and Phil Collins. They all do have the same haircut. Jimmy. Bring back the adult alarm next segment. War Wacko Jacko. Court. You got a taste right there. Don't say I don't play ball. That's the famous Wacko Jacko adult alarm. Something that also was buried. And there's a moratorium on. Quote. If you want hour two to be a fat segment, you could broadcast it on my face. Sign Matt Stafford. Hi, Jim. For the Anything Goes segment, can you finally tell us the rapper that sent Janet a bottle of champagne in Vegas? Appreciate you. Bella being Calgary. Well, no, Bella. And it was not a bottle of champagne in Vegas. That story is getting bigger and bigger. It was at Mr. Chow's in Beverly Hills, and he dropped a couple of lines on her. He did not send her a bottle in Vegas. Near Todd writes, if we're talking Tina Yothers, may I bring back this Tina Yothers haiku that I emailed you back in the day? Roly-poly girl 
was Jen on Family Ties tried to eat Alex. <laughs> Grape Ludini. Two, 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 two. Yours, Mark Grace, discussing his favorite slump busters. All right, let's go to the phones. Two, two, two. Two, 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 two. Anything goes. Mark in Hollywood. What's up, Mark? Jim, uh, I don't know. Maybe someone's playing a prank on you. This is not Mark in Hollywood. This is Urban Meyer, the head ball coach. And I have a beef. Is this? Can we do the jerk it segment? You go jerk ahead, coach. Segment? Go ahead, coach. Yeah, my beef is with you, Jim. All right, it's devastating. You've been pretty critical of my behavior, and I just like to say it's been heartbreaking. All right, a young guy like myself deserves a night out sometimes. And that whole thing at the bar was a misunderstanding, all right? Bart Scott told me the secret of keeping warm on the sidelines, so I tanked up on some Viagra, all right, tough guy? So after we lost the game, I needed to blow off some steam, okay, Mr. Radio Man? And that's why I had to put on my Ohio State pullover, because Buddy was protruding, and I couldn't hide it. If you see me working, Mr. Radio Man, okay, tough guy? And you don't know what it's like when a hot, young co-ed approaches you and starts devastating your pelvis with her backfield. Buddy loved her three-point stance. What do you call it, Jim? A bisp? I definitely had to go home on the jag train if you see me working. Oh, I have a heart attack. Oh, my family contract. I'm flaming him out. Rack him. I'm not going to run him. Rack him. Mark in Hollywood on 2-22-22. And you're all on the clock. A 22-minute segment. Let's keep going. On the phones, Jeremy in Boise. It's an anything-goes segment. There is a line. There is a buzzer. I'm not afraid to use it, but have at it, clones. Do what you can never, ever do on this show. Jeremy in Boise. Jeremy, what's up? Romy. Hey, man, my boy and I had a question. If I write Craig and Gary Gaetti were hanging out together in an alley and someone drops a bagel, who do you think gets to that bagel first? Because Gary Gaetti, he's probably faster. But I write Craig, he probably wants it more. I'll take your answer out the air. Thank you. Jeremy and Boise, he poses a question. If somebody drops a bagel in an alley and Gary Gaetti is there and I write Craig is there, who gets the bagel faster? Gaetti because he's quicker or Iray because he wants it worse? Good question, Jeremy. I'm going to say that hunger is an extremely motivating factor. I'm going to go with Iray in that. Let's go to Vic in NoCal. See, now Vic is dangerous enough on any given day. And now I'm letting Vic in on the day. 222-22. Alvin, beyond that buzzer. Yo, Broadway, what's up, dude? What's up, man? Hey, I was out in uh, New York City recently. Uh, I was going to go to a Knicks game with a buddy of mine. They were playing San Antonio. But then my buddy uh, had to cancel on me at the last second. He got, he got snowed in at the airport. Anyway, I'm walking around NYC right by Madison Square Garden, and I run across right there on the street, man, none other than... Sarah Jessica Parker, New York City legend. And I'm like, yo, SJP, big fan. What's up, girlfriend? Why the long face? And she goes, oh, hey, Vic. Yeah, I'm a big fan of yours, too. I don't know, man. I'm just having a rough day. And I go, well, I got the perfect cure for that. I got two tickets to the next game against San Antonio. So what's up, SJP? What's it going to be? Are you in? Yay or nay? And she goes, Nay, man. I hate the Spurs. <laughs> Vic. Hey, SJP is allowable. Actually, he was on his best behavior. And I don't want to encourage you to call back, Vic, and say, oh, really? You want me to do better? I know he can. Although that was good. 1-800-636-8686. Have at it, clones. I mean, I would, even, I would even encourage you to step your game up because this is the only time we're going to do this. And probably never, up. ever again. I bet this guy gets it. Let's go to Erie. Dom in Erie. What's going on, Dom? Hey, Jim. Happy Tuesday. Uh, I got an ATP for you. 
Uh, my question is, who is the pro football player who went to a college dorm to visit a co-ed who may or may not have been Kathleen in Omaha and dropped a fierce growler in her laundry basket while walking up sweatpants with a boner? I think you already know the answer to your own question, Dom, but thank you very much. You got in a Najee Davenport reference, something normally we have a ban on. Let's see here. Carl is in. He writes, War Pervin Meyer getting inducted into the rat family. Well, that dude's got a lot of things working, right? He's perv. He's got hump day to look forward to. And he may actually get into a family that no longer exists, but will exist for maybe nine more minutes. Total Big E tweets. Happy 2-22-22 day, Tansmack. I would like to nominate the following three gentlemen for induction into the tripod family. Thick Foles, Greg Norman, and Pronk. Unwar Frozen Dogs. All right, see, that one's right there on the line. Right there on the line. Right in my face. Romy right Stillskin. You can still run us this segment. The only runs I do are to the donut shop and on the toilet. Signed, Roseanne Maple Bar. Donuts. V in the fee. You're getting warmed up, aren't you? Hi, Jim. What do you call a bum who can fly? Answer, Peter Panhandle. Sarah T getting in with Bum Smack because she knows that on any other day, Bum Smack would not be allowed. It's an anything goes segment because, because 2-22-22. Got where, there he is, Benny in Wisco. My man, Benny, what's going on? Hey, not much. How are you doing, Jim? Great, dude. Good to hear from you. Wonderful. Hey, I just wanted to drop a quick uh, uh, war here. I just wanted to war Jeffrey Dahmer enjoying a bowl of Jay stew for lunch with a side of Fred sticks. Thanks a lot, man. Benny. Benny and Wisco warring Jeffrey Dahmer and what he had for lunch. A bowl of Jay stew and a side of breadsticks? 1-800- 636-8686. You're all on the clock. You're running out of time. Get it off your chest and do it right now because I don't know when you're ever going to get this opportunity ever again. Mr. Bugaboo. Self-glossing is allowed today. Let's go to Mr. Bugaboo. Mr. Bugaboo, what's up? Uh, just hanging out, working. I thought I'd uh, take a U-turn. Uh, the self-glock uh, has no meaning at all. But instead of being controversial, I thought we could be extremely boring and maybe we could get uh, your memories on Eldridge Rickasner. There you go, Mr. Bugaboo. Come on, man. If you're going to self-gloss, come with something. Don't come with something like, yeah, I just thought that I would self-gloss and it really has no meaning and it's boring. Dude, it's the anything goes segment. If you're going to self-gloss, self-gloss. I think that you're wasting an opportunity. Like, this clock is spinning fast. In fact, the segment almost doesn't work unless somebody gets run. Let's go to Sandwich in NoCal. Hey, Sandwich. What's up? Yo, Jim. How's it going, big dog? Good to hear from you. Yeah, you too. What's up? Yo, just here to self-gloss. My little brother told me that anything's going today, so I just had to call in. I'm sick of the clones. Uh, and their deforestation efforts on the jungle. I'm here to get in their face just like a freaking prank, dude. I'm here to say what's up, just introduce myself. Uh, love the show, Jim. Thanks for letting anything go. Suck. Okay, I don't know what you were going to say, but I'm glad that I ended it before it happened. Anything that starts with suck, I think was going to end badly. Sandwich in NoCal. Hey, be ready. Be ready when I come to you. Be ready when I come to you and understand the opportunity in front of you. 1-800-636-8686. Let's go to Hollywood. Michael in Hollywood. 
Michael, how are you? Hey, Jimmy. Michael Douglas here, famous Hollywood actor. Now, you may know me from some of my famous roles, such as Gordon Gecko in Wall Street, but I actually have a lot in common with Juwan Howard. Sure, I was never a member of the Fab Five. I never made it to a Final Four. But much like Juwan, I, too, have got myself into quite a pickle in the past thanks to my proclivities for snatching face. Let's go, Brandon. I'm out. Michael Douglas calling in to snatch face. All right, now we're moving closer to that line, aren't we? It's an anything goes segment. That's Alvy reminding you that you are on the clock. You are running out of time. Yeah, I'm letting you know that anything goes. You can do whatever you want, but only for a couple of minutes more, and then probably never ever again. One eight zero zero six three six eight six eight six. Let's go to. All right, I'll do it. I said anything goes. Parody, Larry. Lawrence, you're on the air. What's up? Hey, what's up, Jim? How are you? Great, Larry. How are you? I'm great, man. Hey, Jim. So listen, uh, I, I wanted to go back to the incredible Super Bowl radio room we had for a second. That was the absolute best bunch of interviews you did in the entire ones that I've seen. And watching your man, Alvy up there, he made it on sitting on those phone books with his squeaky voice and his 10-year-old jacket. He's a wizard on the mic, Jim, but let me tell you, he reminds me of the Wizard of Oz when he goes, like, Roby Land, Albie on to Munchkin Land, to Munchkin Land, to Munchkin Land. Hey, Albie, let me You don't like that call. I don't like that call. Not a very good call. Dude, I'm not sure why. But him singing about Alvy and the Munchkin Land actually made me laugh. Somebody who's not laughing is Alvin who ran him. So, Alvin, did that put us at risk with the FCC, or do you just hate the guy? He wanted to get to the next call. Here he is, the BIC, arguably the most dangerous man in the jungle. On any given normal day, and we're letting him in on 222.22. Yo, Brad, what's up, champ? Rome, how you doing, baby? Good, dude. How about you? Oh, fantastic. Listen, I've been waiting on this one for a while. Um, got an ATP for you here, if you don't mind. Is that cool? Of course. Could you break down the XR4TI and tell us your best guess? on who is and who is not circumcised? <laughs> well, Brad, okay. First of all, technically, I'm not going <laughs> to... I'm not going to run you for that because anything goes. And, in fact, that is part of your brand, Brad. Part of what makes you the BIC, the BIC and the best ever do it is that... And I'm just not going to answer that because I don't think I can. You just said to me, can you break down who on the... <laughs> now, the answer is no, Brad, I can't. Not even like I can, but I won't. The answer is no, I cannot. Because I don't need to think like that. Like, first of all, I don't even know that the procedure existed back in the early 1900s when Ritt was born. And if it did, I bet it was painful as hell. Mr. President. Brad. Be sure you rack that call, Alvin. Rack him! Could I break down which members of the XR4TI are circumcised? We've got time for one or two more. Let's go to Wisconsin. This guy says he's fat-ass Scott. Yo, fat ass, what up? What up, pimp? Thanks for taking it. This is the fat ass, and I just want to call myself out. Listen, you listener from Wisconsin, Scott, you're a fat, unkept, balding piece of crap. Put the fork down already. Instead of listening to the Jim Rome show, why don't you do some exercising, you disrespectful little piece of crap? And you know what, Jim? He's 47 years old, and you know the best thing about wrestling with 47 years old? 47-year-olds? There's 40 of them. I'm out. 
Fat ass. Good fat. job. Rack him too. That's self-gloss. Call himself a fat ass. Let's get to a phone call quickly. Old Trapper. Huh. Hey, Old Trapper. What's going on? How's it going? Good. How are you? Oh, not bad. So my friends, uh, they so they gloss me with Old Trapper. How come? Uh, because I found the queen. She said I was young, brown, and tender, and she wrecked me. All right. Uh, the thing's starting to die out on me right now. Like you're trying, you're just not very good at it. Then again, it is pretty hard to follow the best in the game, the BIC. What do you think, Chalk? Do we have time for one more? Is there anything worthy before I go to break? This was my gift to you. 2-22-22. Let's go to Jason in Harrisburg quickly. Jason, you made it in. What's going on? What's up, Rome? How are you? Good, dude. How about you? Good. Yeah, I got a limerick. Not a haiku. I got a limerick about uh, Tyler, my man. There once was a Canadian bag who dressed his girl in the Canadian flag. But if she really was smoking, then why was he stroking to take out of his sweatpants the sag later? You can go ahead and run that, Alvin. Ah! No. Yo, Jason, thanks like very much for that one, Limerick. Like that and that's 22 minutes exactly. Now we are done. Now I'm done. James in Portland. Hey, James, what's going on? Hey, Jimmy, what's happening, brother? Been a moment, and uh, happy 222. And I ask that you extend the 222 rule to me uh, over the next two minutes. Are we cool? Not really, but go ahead. Awesome. I'm, I'm here to answer Brad's ATP, and we'll need to travel back in time to answer the question if a doctor ever did some remodeling on the XR4TI's junk. And, Jim, let's do it through the doctor's point of view. Starting with Ritt, that doctor, once he actually found what Ritt was working with, claimed, we will make this look like a bald head. So, yes, Ritt, circumcised. Chalk, that doctor, once he shaved an enormous patch of pubes, said, let's be real. Ah. That's not a good call. No. You don't like that call. I don't like that call. Not a very good call. This dude. This dude. Only James in Portland. Clones, what do you want when you're craving protein or you need more energy? Not bars, not sugary snacks, not energy drinks. You want beef, pure and simple. Where's the beef? It's in a package of Old Trapper Beef Jerky. Old Trapper is not your old man's jerky. Shriveled, dry, tasteless. Old Trapper Beef Jerky is made from lean strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a real wood fire. It's tender, it's tasty, it's not tough. And why is it so good? Because Old Trapper is a 50-year-old family business known for its relentless commitment to quality. They take smoked beef extremely seriously and you can taste it in every single bite. Old Trapper is packed with protein. It comes in four amazing flavors to satisfy all your cravings. Quality smoked meat at its finest. It goes with you wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach. So look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. Clones, if you do not see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper or what's your beef? Is Dick for meal? Dick, it is so great to have you on the show. How are you, Dick? I'm doing fine, Jim. Thank you for the opportunity to say hello. Well, it's so great to say hello to you, too, Dick. It's been a moment or two. You've had some time for this to sink in, so I'm curious. How does it feel to be a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Well, I think the first term that comes to me is uh, very grateful. You know, very grateful for all the people that contributed to this honor for me. You know, if you're a NFL great running back. You may, you get in the Hall of Fame because you made a lot of yards and you did a lot of things on your own. But as a coach, you go in as a symbol of what so many people have done for you in your total organization, from the ownership to the management team to the personnel department to your coaching staff and all those great players. And I'm the end product, and I'm very appreciative. We're talking to Dick Vermeil. You know, Dick, I wouldn't even know where to start in terms of asking you about some of these people. But conveniently, I guess I could start with Kurt Warner because he was the person who gave you the official word that you were going into the Hall of Fame. The video of him arriving really is great. What were you thinking when you saw him coming? 
Well, I went out to greet a UPS driver, okay? (laughs) I had no idea he was coming. I heard the driveway buzzer go off, so I went out. I said to myself, who in heck is coming this early? must be UPS, so I walked out. You know, and there's Kurt Warner walking through the woods and not didn't even come down the deck. He walked through the woods with a camera crew. And right away, I said, oh, this is the way they're telling me I made it. <laughs> mm, what a great story. Dick Vermeule is joining us. You know, Dick, there were 27 coaches in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You are now number 28. And there have been an awful lot of really, really good coaches in the NFL. Really good coaches. What's it mean to you then to be one of the 28? Well, it means I'm very fortunate. It means there are people, you know, Dan Reeves, you know, Marty Schottenheimer, Mike Holmgren, Tom Coughlin, George Seifert, all these kind of guys, Chuck Knox, they belong in the Hall of Fame, too. And for me to go in ahead of them, uh, I, I feel very, very, very fortunate because I have great respect and admiration for those guys. I coached against them. I know them. I've coached with three NFL uh, Hall of Fame coaches in George Allen, Sid Gilman, and uh, Bill Walsh, so I know what they're like, you know, and I, I never put myself in the category of these great guys. And to now, because of a vote by a, a team of voters that selected me, it's, it's humbling. Dick Vermeil, Hall of Famer. Dick, let me ask you this. From where I'm sitting, from talking to you over the years, you seem like you were in a really good place in your life. You've got Vermeil Wines. You have had an all-time great coaching career. You're close with so many of your former players. I'm curious – did you feel like you wanted or needed to be in the Hall of Fame? How do you approach that angle? You know, that's a good question, Jim. No one's asked me that in that way. I've been asked a lot of questions about the Hall of Fame, but not in that way, you know. Uh, the best way for me to answer that, I think, is, you know, I, I know Hall of Fame coaches. I coached against four, okay, 14 of them. You know, the Don Shulas and these guys, the Tom Landry's. Bill Parcells and these guys and George Allen's, of course, I worked with, you know, and I coming out of high school and junior college, then college, then into the NFL, you, at least with me, you never sort of put yourself in that same status, that same level. You look up to them with great admiration and respect and you, and all of a sudden you find yourself voted into a situation that puts you as a peer. And it's, uh, like I'm repeating myself, it's unbelievable. It, it really is. And I, I never really got into the attitude that I deserved it. I always felt you get what you deserve. If you don't get it, you didn't deserve it. If you did get it, you deserved it. So right now, a lot of people feel that I deserved it, and I'm going in. And hopefully the Holmgrens and these guys will all go in another time. But they've only put 10 coaches in in the last 25 years so Mm. they got to pick up the pace (laughs) dick vermeil joining us dick you mentioned high school i'm curious you started out as an assistant high school coach at del mar high school in san jose like if you were to think way back then what was your vision for your career and your life at that point i wanted to be a head coach in high school and make twelve thousand dollars a year Mm. okay great i was fifty four hundred dollars a year as a assistant football coach and head track coach at, at Del Mar High School. Wonderful people. George Miskillen hired me to come over there and work, and I taught freshman English, set those kids back a whole year, and uh, freshman orientation and physical education and coached. And, uh, but I wanted to be a head football coach in high school, and the next year I was. Bob Bronson, my college football coach, one day called me and said, uh, Mr. Uh, he said, Coach, Vermeule he, he said, uh, a guy by the name of Frank Collins is going to call you and talk to you about coming to Hillsdale High School be the football coach. Take the job. It's a great school. So help me God. And that's how my career got started, just by people recommending me and me taking advantage of their recommendations. We're talking to Dick Vermeil. He's a Hall of Famer. You know, Dick, when I think back on your career, you had a great reputation for turning around teams. As an example, the Eagles won four games in your first season. Then they went to the playoffs in your third year. St. Louis won five games in your first season. Then they won the Super Bowl in your third year. Kansas City won six games in year one and 13 in year three. What was your process for those turnarounds? How were you able to do that consistently? Surround yourself with good people and keep all the kids that will work. (laughs) <laughs> have a good personnel department, listen to them, make your contribution, but work them. You know, I think we did a great job of teaching kids that hard work is not a form of punishment. You know, it's a lot tougher to do that today. We won 35% of our games in our first two years at, at three different pro teams. We won 73% of them in our third year. Hard work, 
works as long as you have good people and good kids. Dick Vermeule is joining us. You know, Dick, I can mention any number of players, but one guy that I do want to single out because I know you were thinking about him after you got the Hall of Fame news, and that's Claude Humphrey. He played for you in Philadelphia. He carried you off the field. He passed away in December. What was it about him that made him special as a person, and why was he someone who immediately came to mind in that moment? Well, he came to us at the end of his career after retiring, retiring, and because I had Marion Campbell on my staff who had coached him in Atlanta. He came out of respect for Marion. We brought him out of retirement and he was such a great example of what a true pro football player was all about. You talk about work. I can remember going to him and saying, Claude, you know, you're the older guy on this roster right now. And if you'd like to take the striders off after practice or cut a little off practice tomorrow, he, he would say, coach, if the rest of the team's doing it, I'm doing it. Not only would he do it, he would set the tempo to do it. He, he didn't use his age or the many a seasons as he played for an excuse to practice light on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and play well on Sunday. That was not him. And I, I just admired him. And we developed a, a very close relationship. I had talked to him a few weeks before he passing, and he was a big advocate for me to get in the hall. These guys that are in the hall have a voice. And he and Willie Rope and Will Shields and, and Kurt and some of these guys were advocates for me. And I uh, just, you know, he told me he was going to be there. He said, Coach, he's on dialysis. And he says, I'm on dialysis, but I will find a way to be there when you go in. Well, God bless him. Mm. He'll be there in spirit. And, 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 you know, I wish he'd have been there physically because he was a great man. And now a message from Discover about rewards. If you're a loyal credit card customer, you should be rewarded for your loyalty, preferably with something that's useful. You know, like Cashback Match, for instance. Discover matches all the cash back you've earned at the end of your first year. Finally, rewards, they do make sense. Discover, exceptionally common sense. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Limitations do apply. You bet. Dick Vermeule is joining us. You know, Dick, you talk about the guys who were not in. I'm curious, I've spoken to Tory Holt a number of times over the years about his Hall of Fame candidacy. What would it mean to you to see Tory get in? Well, first off, he is a Hall of Fame player. I've studied all the numbers. I've watched him. I, I was with him. I was involved in drafting him. And if, if, first thing it would mean, if he goes in the Hall of Fame, which he will just in time, then two of my, of my three first-round picks at the Rams are in the Hall of Fame. Okay? So my personnel department, Charlie Army and John Becker and those guys, did a wonderful, wonderful job. And But Torrey is truly a gifted player in retirement i mean he he he's done what it has to be done to be a hall of fame wide receiver and sooner or later it's going to happen but today there are so many people catching a lot of balls and all these kinds of things but i think he uh tory with mike marks coaching the offense and and al saunders and jim hampton and these guys we were sort of on the forefront of exploiting great wide receivers like isaac brooks who already went in and tory holt will go in yeah, I agree with you, Dick. I think he had a great career. I think the numbers back it up. I would love to see it, and I hope it's a matter of if or when as opposed to if. Before you go, Dick, you decided that you were going to go into the Hall of Fame as an Eagle. I would imagine that was not an easy decision to make, or maybe was it? Like, what was your decision-making process, and why did you choose the Eagles? Well, I coached there the longest. I coached there seven years as their head coach. I live in the community. They've been very respectful to me all these years, out of coaching and back into coaching. And, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I just, I, you know, I have many players that I coached for seven years even still living in the community there. And we get together, you know, many times during the year and, and enjoy different things and events and meals and good glasses of wine. I, I just feel a little closer to that group. And, and that's where my family lives for the most part. So, you know, I, and I call Philadelphia my home. You know, Dick, it's really quickly, it's it's such a tough business and it can be so cutthroat, but you talked about some of the guys that you maintain relationships with. I don't know too many coaches that have the long-term relationships that you have with your players. Former players always say that you're one of their best friends. What do those relationships mean to you? Why are they so important? Well, I think, first off, you've got to be who you are. You know, I, really, what I became a sophisticated high school football coaching in the NFL. I just never changed. I enjoyed coaching high school football, junior college football, uh, major college football, and I enjoyed the relationships the most. 
I let them get to know me, and I really got to know many of them. And so, you know, and without them, without them, I'm not in the Hall of Fame. I learned a long time ago, my third year as a head football coach in high school, Hillsdale High School. My first year, I was coach of the year, and we lost the championship game. I was 23 years old. The next year, we went undefeated and won the championship. The next year, we won four and lost five, six, I think, because all my good players graduated. And that made me realize, you know, players win games, not coaches. And it's your job as a coach to make sure you help each player be the best he can possibly be. And that was such a lesson for me. And uh, I, I put the players number one and the coaches number two from that time on. Wow. Dick Vermeule joining us really quickly. Dick, you and I have spoken about Vermeule Wines in the past. How is business these days and how much fun are you still having with that? Well, Jim, thank you for asking. The business is good. That's the first time I can really tell you that. We've been in wine business for 13 years, a little small organization. And uh, we're in the black for the first time. It's going well. We have 420 club members of today. We'll hope to have about 500 by the end of the year. The only problem we have right now is in 2020, due to the Napa Valley forest fires, we lost all our red grapes due to smoke damage. So, uh, you know, we're going to be a little short of wine that year, but our tasting room in Napa, 1018 First Street, is going well. You know, I, Thomas Brown, who I think is the Bill Belichick of the Napa Valley winemakers, is our consultant, and Andy Jones makes our wine at Mendingwall Winery, and we're, we have a great product. We have, and we're proud of our product, and, and the people enjoy it. And, uh, you know, we're in the playoffs. <laughs> You are in the playoffs, Dick. I've been, in fact, my wife Janet and I were married in Napa. It's a very, very special place. So what can I do to help you get that membership up? If people would like more information or would like to become members and sample your wines, what is the best way for them to do so? Just Google Vermeer Wines. There's many different levels of membership, so just Google Vermeer Wines. They're not inexpensive wines. They're quality wines. We don't make a lot. This year we're bottling 1,700 cases. Normally, we're in the 2,300 to 2,500 cases of wine. Reds, uh, uh, two whites, a Chardonnay and a Sauvignon Blanc, and three cabs, a Cabernet Franc, a Zinfandel, a Petit Syrah, and uh, a Charbonneau, believe it or not. (laughs) I love it. He's a Super Bowl champ. He is a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame class of 2022, a winemaker with Vermeil Wines, and he just told you how to find that, too. Dick, congratulations. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Great to get caught up with you, Dick. Congrats. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Austin Sindrick is my guest. Austin, great to have you on. How are you? I'm, I'm doing great, Jim. How are you? Good, dude. Good. Congratulations. Great to have you on. So let me first ask you how you celebrated that amazing win on Sunday. I saw you hit up Steak and Shake. What was your order, and how good did that meal taste? Oh, I got a double steak burger, playing with cheese, and a bunch of fries and a chocolate shake, and uh, a lot of the guys did did the same. It was a pretty pretty fun way to, to celebrate. Uh, you know, I've, I've I've been present for a lot of uh, Indy 500 victories that, that Team Penske has had. And usually, it's uh, celebrated with some burgers, so we, we're able to to keep the tradition going on our side. Let me tell you something. That sounds amazing. That sounds like the very best way to celebrate. So, Austin, take me back to the final laps on Sunday. You were the leader at the start of the two lap overtime shootout. Can you describe what you were feeling in that moment? Yeah, I mean that, that's that's the moment every racer dreams of to be able to be in a shot to win the biggest race of the year, and and, and let alone in, in front of a sellout crowd, and to be able to capitalize. And uh, my team had done an incredible job all day, putting me in position, and we'd run up front all race. And and, and you know you, you want to capitalize on those moments in life because you you don't know when the next one's going to be. But you know in, in the moment, it's about you know figuring out wh- where the runs are going to be, what's going to happen, and, and, and delivering the right information. And, and my team did a great job, and I was obviously able to. To hold off all the wolves coming off the of turn four there, the, there was a lot of runs coming at us and able to able to win it just by a nose. You know, you're actually one step ahead of me in that regard. I was going to ask you about your team. Like, you had your teammate Ryan Blaney beside you. You cleared him. You dropped in front of him, and then you blocked him. Bubba Wallace then made a run at you. So, like, what's going through your mind during that entire sequence? I know you touched on that, but kind of lay that out for me. What did that feel like? Yeah, obviously, Ryan and I both uh, coordinated the restart there to where we could both get, you know, first and second and, and uh, I, I think we, we really executed that well. I, I think Ryan, it was Ryan's idea to do it, and uh, I, I think it worked out perfectly in, in, in the way the way we both had a shot to win the race coming off of turn four. And um, He made his move to the outside, and then Bubba made his move to the bottom, and uh, we we were having to fend off both of them at the same time, and, and uh, you know it was it obviously worked out perfectly for us in the end. But 
um, to, to have two, two, two cars for Roger Penske with a shot to win the Daytona 500. I'm not sure what more you can say about a race team. So um, I appreciate Ryan, Ryan doing his part there, and, and, and we were able to, to really execute that well and, and, and give Roger a shot at another championship trophy for the Austin Sindrick is joining us, the winner of the Daytona 500. So when you hit that line, and I mentioned how close the race was, third closest ever, .036 seconds, when you hit that line and you know it's yours, you won, what's that moment like? The same thing happened to me when I won the championship in, in, in 2020. You know, I crossed the line, and um, I, I knew instantly that I'd won the race, but um, it, it took me all the way up until turn two to actually keep the mic and say anything because you, you get lost in your own thoughts, you know, somewhat in disbelief the, of what you just accomplished and um, all the thoughts of, of what you've done now since you, you, you win the race. You know, what, what are those emotions and those feelings? And then all of a sudden you've, you've been off the mic for 15, 20 seconds, and uh, you're, you're expected to talk. So um, it's just uh, it's crazy the rush of emotions and the rush of emotions of the race team. You know, when, when I look at pictures and videos of the guys celebrating on pit road right after the, the race happened to see the, the release of elation from, from everybody, it, it certainly makes my, my job that much more gratifying to be able to, to bring that to that team. You know, I'm really curious, Austin. For instance, like it's said, I'm sure it's still sinking in, but you had a lot of success in the Xfinity Series, but you're a rookie in the Cup Series. In fact, Sunday was just your eighth career Cup Series start. What kind of expectations did you have going into that race on Sunday? Well, I really did think that we had a car capable of winning. You know, I, I think the, the two car and Team Penske have a pedigree of winning, and uh, when, when you're in that position, you, you, you're expected to perform. So, uh, from from my standpoint, I knew we had the equipment capable of it. I knew it had a t- I had a team capable of it, and um, just, just having to be able to adapt and be open minded throughout the race with with having a new car, and, and, and for me personally, being in, in a new environment with with new information, new people giving it to me. So, um, I, I think with all those things stacked on top of each other. Um, and on top of being a rookie in, in, in what I would say is probably the most social atmosphere in, in, in racing with super speedway style racing. So um, being able to coordinate that, and, and, and a lot of that has to do with the coordination with, with all the four teams and, and, and as well as my teammates because um, I, I do feel like that, that was a, a key factor in us being able to stay contenders all day. So you mentioned the team a couple of times. I get that. And then it's in the family, right? Your father, Tim, is president of Team Penske. But he said that when you were 10 years old, racing was not the road that he wanted you to go down. So when did you realize that that is the life that you wanted? And then what's it been like to share this with your father? Yeah, it was way before I was 10 years old that I wanted to be a race car driver. I've really known nothing else in life but racing. And I've been exposed to it from a really young age. So I, I guess that comes naturally. But I didn't really express to my parents until I was 9 or 10 years old that, that I actually wanted to be a driver. And um, my dad was very quick on the trigger to tell me that I was, I was just going to be too tall. You know, there's no way. You're, you're just going to be too tall. And um, he thought that I was going to accept that. And I got right back at him and told him that Michael Waltrip and, and Justin Wilson are well over 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, and um, they're, they're both uh, very successful race car drivers. So uh, he, my, my parents have been um, really great supporters of mine. And um, my, my, myself and my brother, you know, whatever we've wanted to do in life, they've been great supporters of and been able to, to put us in the right path of, of, of what we've wanted to do. And um, I'm, just, I'm just grateful for, for that opportunity and, and, and to be able to share that with them. And my, my brother lives in Oslo, Norway, and we were able to call him while I was on the, while I was on the stage in Victory Lane and kind of have a, have a bit of a family moment. But to, to have my parents there and, and, and to enjoy that with them is, is obviously pretty special. That is really cool. We've got a few more moments, Austin. So last Thursday, you spent time with the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds. You flew in one of their F-16s. I'm really curious, what was that experience like? Oh, my gosh. Talk about an adrenaline rush. Um, you know, from, from the, the brief, we had to do five hours worth of briefing, and, and then you go send an F-16 that, that's capable of, you know, pulling over nine Gs and, and, and that, that's enough force to push all the air out of, out of your lungs and, and to go through the breathing techniques and all the, all the straining that you have to do to, to not pass out, to not puke. And <laughs> I, I didn't do either. I felt like I got close to passing out a few times, but uh, yeah, absolutely uh, an opportunity of a lifetime, especially for someone who's, who's a Star Wars fan. That's probably the closest I'm going to get to flying in an X-Wing, but um, definitely, definitely an opportunity of a lifetime. The Thunderbirds were in victory lane, so that was, that was way cool. Um, to, to be able to share that with those guys. But uh, like I said, opportunity of a lifetime to, to experience something like that. Austin, I've never actually done it, but I've talked to a lot of guys who have. And to your point about how I did not pass out and I did not puke, they kind of try to get you to puke, right? Uh, I've, I've, heard, I've heard some guys uh, have, have experiences like that. They, they definitely took care of me. You know, the one thing on the topic of being tall, like, you know, one of the, one of the issues, not an issue, but like, 
tall guy, you're pretty cramped up in there. I mean, my head's pretty much right in the canopy, but um, you know, my legs being on such a high angle, like blood flow is very important because blood obviously carries oxygen throughout the body. And, and when you're carrying those G's, like all the blood is rushing out of your head, and you're you're trying to do the most you can to circulate blood. Well, I've got a lot of further distance to travel there, so my my pilot is actually pretty tall, and I'm glad they paired us up together because I, I think he had a respect of kind of where I was coming from as far as you know what the rest time that I needed and the breathing that I needed to do, and you know what I was probably going through compared to you know you know some some guy some Jack Russell who's like you know five six and ready to to flip a plane around for an hour and a half with, with, without a care in the world. So uh, I, I do think I lucked out on, on who I got there to, to fly me around in the sky. But, uh, yeah, never been in an airplane upside down on purpose, I can tell you that. I'll tell you what, uh, given what you do for a living, the fact that you're speaking about this experience with this kind of reverence speaks to me exactly what that must be like. So finally, the Daytona 500, of course, is the biggest race of the year, but the season has just started. So how do you use that result on Sunday to power you this weekend and then the rest of the year? You know, it, it certainly sets us up really well for the rest of the year. You know, with with the playoff format, you you, you win and you're in. And so for us, we, we won the Daytona 500. We won the first race of the year. We're in the playoffs, and, and and that gives us a lot of flexibility throughout the regular season to to do what we need to do as far as being aggressive to try and gain playoff points or you know learn something with a new car. You know, to kind of divide and conquer as a race team, but but also gives me the opportunity to be patient and in, in a lot of moments to to really soak in the learning process. I mean, I, I know. A rookie season, there's going to be highs and lows, and um, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity for growth and for me to recognize strengths and weaknesses and uh, for, for me to be able to, to do that early and kind of do that our, at our own pace, as well as working with a new team and getting that communication down, I think it's going to be important. And you know, the, the best thing we can do is try and set ourselves up well for the postseason. My man, you do not sound like a rookie, but I know for a fact you are a rookie because you're the first rookie to win the Daytona 500. He is the driver of the number two car for Team Penske. He won that race. Next up, the Wise Power 400. It's in Fontana on Sunday, 3.30 p.m. Eastern on Fox. Austin, great to have you on the show. Thanks so much. Congrats. Hope we can do it again soon. Awesome. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. Good talking to you, Austin. Well done. Good night now!